Poppy the Mechanics, How Your World Works is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash world. That's casper.com slash world. Promo code world. Use the promo code world. That's from our show. You will be helping our show. You will be doing the right thing for a mattress near you. And a ghost named Casper. I assume it's his company. Okay, Kevin, so Tuesday morning this week, it's July 14th. You get up at 5.30 a.m. It was 5.52, actually. It's 5.52. You're kind of kind of close. I was tired. Okay, so you get up at 5.52 a.m., you get on a subway, you go up to the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah. And you go into a large, darkened auditorium filled with scientists and press people and people from NASA and astronomers. Yeah. And you were all there because you were waiting for a message. A message that took nine and a half years to get there. message that says... I'm here. Yeah. So, of course, we are talking about the New Horizons space probe, which made its historic flyby of Pluto this week. We've all since seen the beautiful photographs that it sent back. So, Kevin, what was it like? The room must have been electric. It was actually weirdly anticlimactic because New Horizons at this point was under radio silence so that it could collect information. It would be too much work for it to collect it and send a message back to us at the same time. So up on the screen, we had a simulation of the probe but we weren't actually seeing any pictures or live information. And I think actually the thing is that what's really incredible about this mission isn't just pictures of Pluto. What's really amazing is that we launched this thing nine years ago and three and a half billion miles later, it's right next to the planet that we sent it to. That's true. But I would say even more amazing that is that this actually didn't begin nine years ago. This began when it was just a, a twinkle in a scientist's eye at NASA. So my question is, how did we get here? Yeah, well, I didn't know. But I found this guy there, and I asked him. It's magic. <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, it's physics. It's the laws of physics. It's why science is a distinctly different kind of enterprise from everything else. We can launch something in a particular direction at a particular speed and know that in nine years it'll be within Pluto's airspace. That's an extraordinary fact. I'm Kevin Dupsick. And I'm Jack Dillon. And that was Neil deGrasse Tyson, director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. On today's episode, he explains how the New Horizons probe works. That's right, and we are going to talk to Jake Morrison, the visual effects supervisor for the new Ant-Man movie. He will explain to us how you turn a man the size of an ant into a film. And we answer that great unknown question, why does water taste better from the bathroom than from the kitchen? This is How Your World Works. All right, so you heard us mention at the top there that the New Horizons mission began much longer than nine and a half years ago. It actually began when the project was conceived back at NASA in 1989. Just imagine, you're NASA, you've got the best science technology and minds on the planet at your disposal, and at this point too, every other known planet, remember it's 1989, so Pluto is still a planet at this point, but every other planet in the solar system had been explored in some way. So there's Pluto, so close and yet so far away, just about, you know, three and a half billion miles away. So Dr. Alan Stern, he's the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission. Back in 1989, he and his team begin conceptualizing the project. Now, over time, there'll be about five different iterations of the project, but this is the one that works. So Pluto, we'd never been to Pluto before. And to me, that's grounds enough to send a space probe. Haven't been there before? Let's go. 
So there's your real first step. You've now got a dream and a plan. But you really want to make it all the way to Pluto? You know how things work. You are going to need some money. So step one, you got to sell the idea to Congress. There's the effort to gain backings, the backing of members of Congress. There's a whole construct to that. So NASA representatives need to go to Congress with a mission proposal and say, hey, I know you guys have got some bills and some other stuff that you need to pay, but how about this project to send a probe to Pluto? This is going to be great. What do you say? We only need about $700 million to do this. And Congress, maybe they were in a good mood that day. They say, sure, we agree with you. This is worth funding. So now you've got your money and a plan. Well, kind of. Yeah, ideally you, ha ideally you have a reliable budget and not wait for congressional approval Congress can be fickle, and sometimes the money for expensive space missions doesn't always last. But for now, you are good to go. You are ready for step two, building your probe. Now, first things first, this is technically rocket science, so you're going to need a rocket. For this, NASA chooses Lockheed's Atlas V rocket. That's the same type of rocket that was used in the Voyager missions, which were the first to send probes to the far reaches of the solar system. Those ones, however, never got a good look at Pluto. Uh, one thing that I think is really interesting is that the instruments that we're using now, obviously we had to have created nine years ago before we launched this thing. They were created even before then because you have to design and build a spaceship and then launch it. So it's, it's technology from probably 12, 13 years ago. So that means things that we would just find impossibly frustrating to work with now. Six gigabyte storage capacities and one kilobyte per second upload rates. 2002 was a horrible, horrible time. They could have put in a higher bandwidth transmitter, multiple antennas, one for sending, one for receiving, but then you'd have to take away one of the instruments. These things weigh, they have a certain weight, and you have a weight limitation. If you want to pass the moon in nine hours instead of three days after you're launched from Earth, you better have a pretty light payload and a pretty heavy-duty rocket. So you rob Peter to pay Paul. You say, all right, it has an antenna. I won't get it in real time, but I'll get it later. And in the meantime, I get this whole other instrument that I can put on the spacecraft. Okay, so you've made some painful decisions about which instruments to take. You've gotten your weight down. There's just one more thing you're not going to want to forget. That's a power supply. Any probe that's traveling this far away from the sun can't rely on solar power. Plus, the cold temperatures of outer space are going to be a problem. So you do what anyone would do. You bring along a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. You know, nuclear power. And how this works is a little more complicated than I can go into here, but basically, heat is released by the decay of a radioactive material, in this case plutonium, and that heat is converted into electricity, which powers the probe. And so is this, so you launch this thing at the, at the right time, with the right speed, in the right direction. How do we communicate well, with this? You're not aiming for Pluto, you're aiming for where Pluto will be when you get there. That seems like that would make it harder. Uh, yeah, but it's just math. Um, is this something where we communicate with it as it's going and we're able to fine-tune that path, or do you have to... Oh, yes, but you, you want to minimize how much you have to fine-tune the path because you're using fuel that you may need for some other purpose. On January 19th, 2006, there's really no other way of putting this, New Horizons blasts off towards Pluto. Its launch is the fastest in history. It speeds away at 36,000 miles per hour. Which is important because if you're the scientist who conceived this project and you want Pluto to reach there while you are still working at NASA, you want New Horizons to pick up the pace. You want it to go fast. Which brings us to the inevitable turn. The turn that seems to be in every sci-fi movie about space, the gravity slingshot. I feel like in every space movie where there's something being launched, there's some point where they say, we're going to slingshot around the gravity of the moon or some planet. Is that real? Did they do that? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's called, a, it's called a gravitational slingshot. But there's an important trick to this that you might not know, which is you want to sneak up on the planet, in this case, Jupiter. And the way you do this is like drafting a car. You come up behind Jupiter. It's traveling in its orbit around the sun. It is massive. It exerts a huge gravitational pull. And you follow it for a little bit. You kind of tailgate it. You catch up with the planet in its orbit around the sun. Then you execute this descent and ascent. And you will gain at the end of that the speed of the planet. And suddenly you are bound for Pluto with all the added speed that Jupiter had to offer. This is the gravity assist. And on January 10th, almost a year after it launched, New Horizons pulls this off. So it might seem like the hard work is over. New Horizons goes into hibernation mode for much of the rest of its journey. Along the way, it captures new images of the moons around Pluto and Neptune. And on December 6, 2014, New Horizons wakes up. Its real mission is finally ready to begin. Today, uh, New Horizons actually reached Pluto and is taking these pictures. Can you please just describe sort of what uh, New Horizons was doing as it was in this time window where it was passing by the planet? Since it's our first time there, these, these experiments are going to give us basic data on what Pluto is and what its surface is, what it's made of, what its atmosphere is doing. Uh, so all that's going on. All these, these, these instruments are, are operating one after another on board the New Horizons space probe. And the most obvious to us today was the imaging, the reconnaissance imaging that it's doing across the surface. During the flyby of Pluto, New Horizons traveled just under 8,000 miles above the surface. For 12 hours, it went radio silent as it focused on collecting as much data as it could. Given the slow speed that its only antennae can send that information back, it will take months for the entire trove of data to reach Earth again. But from the images it produced in just its first day, the scientists couldn't have been more thrilled. They saw ice mountains as high as the Rockies and a surprisingly crater-free surface, which, to their delight, raised countless new questions. New Horizons will keep on traveling into the Kepler belt. It will learn as much as it can from what it finds there and send that information home to us. Eventually, at a certain point, its power source will dwindle. It has one, maybe two years left in it. But scientists don't know exactly when that will be. A next space probe will now ask a next layer of questions. There's none planned now, but this is how the science works. We'll ask a next whole other round of questions about Pluto that no one is in a position to even ask yet. But as I said, my favorite question is the one I don't even know yet to ask. And that is the unknown step. What comes next? Pop of the Mechanics How Your World Works is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper has been revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of you dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you, the customer. Yes, you. So let me tell you what I like about these mattresses. Now, I'm a designer. I used to design things for a long time. So I'm one of those people who appreciates the finer things. I like things to look a certain way. I'm a bit of an esthete in that way. Now, you might think I'm not that kind of guy. I don't care about those things. I'm more practical. Well, guess what? Casper is good at both. They are both very affordable and very well designed. So you can have it all. You don't have to choose between being one of those guys with the MacBook Pro and the square glasses. Do they still make those square glasses? I don't think they have those square glasses anymore. But even if they did, my point 
point is you wouldn't have to choose between that and being the guy who's still rocking the wide leg jeans. I'm talking to you, Mike Pesca. So Casper mattresses are both beautifully designed and very affordable. They are the right choice of mattress for anybody. And right now, How Your Word Works listeners can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com world and use the promo code world. That's W-O-R-L-D. And get your new beautifully designed affordable mattress today. And now we go from the smallest former planet in our solar system to one of the smallest, biggest new stars on the silver screen. I am speaking, of course, of the Ant-Man. Yeah, earlier this week, me and Cameron Johnson, Popular Mechanics editorial assistant, went to go see the Ant-Man. Cameron actually got to interview Jake Morrison, the Ant-Man's visual effects supervisor, about how they got the incredible shots in the Little Heroes macro universe. Hi, Jake. It's Cameron. Hi, Cameron. So I just saw Ant-Man last night, and I thought it was great. And if you could just give us a little background on uh, what you did on the film and and what that actually means. Uh, So... Ant-Man very technically challenging. The bar is raised fairly high. We have um, a number of pictures before, like uh, Tom Thumb or uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, mm-hmm. another great one. And th- these are sort of, you know, these are this is the canon, if you like. Over the years, we sort of discovered that that every one of these pictures really represents kind of the highest level of technical innovation at at its moment. So we knew that we had to sort of research and find all the best and, and greatest tools that we could use for this. And the first the first part of it was the photo reality. So we had to make sure that the, the audience always felt they're in a grounded, you know, not, not computer-generated environment. So that mm-hmm. was important that we didn't, never wanted to fall into that sort of video game um, look. Okay, so how do, you, how do you go about getting shots like this? We started by uh, actually assembling what, what we call the macro unit. So we did this in pre-production and it ran into production. And what it essentially was was it meant that the art department created... Um, not, not sort of large-scale versions of, of the sets, but, but more highly detailed versions. Because the oversized props that you build are made by human hands and human-scale tools, it's, it's almost impossible, and it certainly has never been achieved that I've seen, uh, to be able to create something which accurately looks like it was milled at a tiny, tiny level mm-hmm. and, then, and then blown up to a proper size. And so we decided really early on from the beginning that that, uh, that was not the way we want to go. So you've got these many different sets uh, throughout the film that, of when you're close up on Ant-Man that are the same sets as the rest of the film, but they're with much more greater detail. So when you're really hyper close up on Ant-Man, they look good. Yes, absolutely. So, so we started with that, and then we had a dedicated macro unit um, uh, director of photography. Um, these little mini stages had their own lighting rigs around them, and a whole bunch of like we had dedicated, you know, special effects people. And as I say, we had you know um, art director and, and director of photography. So a huge amount of detail going into the, these little sets. And then we had uh, a massive um, motion control system, like a big camera camera rig that could do repeatable moves. Um, that would fly around and, and, and shoot these things. Yeah, okay, so how are you shooting things that are this small? Is it a special kind of camera? Or are you, how are you getting this particular type of detail? One of the things about macro photography, uh, if anybody's ever taken a camera and tried to shoot any macro photography or, you know, a picture of a bug or, you know, anything like that, is it's, it's impossible to get the entire image in focus. It's just the closer you get mm-hmm. to, to a thing and the bigger you want to represent it, the harder it is to get something in focus. But we used um, mostly uh, a lens called a Fraser lens. And the Fraser lens is, um, 
it's a really, really interesting looking lens. It's kind of like a long tube looking thing. And it, and it, what it does, it enables you to get a really deep depth of field to be able to see much more information in a given frame than you would do normally. The other handy thing for us is that the, the lenses that it uses, the, the actual, the end of it is only about two inches wide, whereas a normal movie lens can be, I mean, pretty big. So um, we, we use that simply because it, was, it got us closer to the ground and let us see a little bit more. So how many times are you shooting these special sets that you built? And from there, I'd imagine that you're, you're trying to put all this into the computer uh, so you can manipulate it. This must be a huge amount of data. If you've seen the picture, you'll know the, the, end, uh, the end battle takes place in, the, in a child's bedroom. Mm-hmm. So that set, which was a real set, which you know we, we shot all the, the normal stuff, uh, the, all the stuff with the acting we shot that, we, we let loose our stills guys in there for a full uh, 10 days. Wow. So it was literally three, three cameras, three still cameras on motion control heads going through there with a team of people just literally shooting nothing, nothing but stills for 10 full days. So, I mean, you can see the amount of data you have to, you have to collect to have full freedom of camera movement, but that's the key. Could you, uh, could you actually go, uh, that's the scene that I, that I really wanted to talk to because I thought that was great. It was very aware that the audience would know that it was, in reality, a, a small train set and the fact that it acted on that with the train uh, falling off the tracks and not doing any damage to the outside world because it was, in fact, a small train. And I was wondering if you could go into uh, a little more detail on the actual setup of that scene and and everything that went into it. Well, sure, yeah. The, the key thing with that scene was to make sure that the audience felt that they were actually in, like, a, a Western, frankly. Sometimes in the movie, when we go and see a macro environment, we, we deliberately keep the camera kind of high. We make sure that Ant-Man's small so the audience feel that he is tiny. But at the same time, in some scenes, we want to bring the audience in and, and make it feel more like a, you know, um, a strong action piece. We kind of start framing stuff a little bit more typically. So we very much went into it with that as, as a plan, that we would basically create a, a, tri- a tiny western epic on top of on top of this little train set and then uh, as as a relief from those kind of shots because you you want to be in there and have the audience really feeling it and you know there's there's some hopefully cool stuff in there you also then um, drop back uh, and every now and again i mean we you know we're careful about how often we use it but we go to the shop which we actually call the gift that keeps on giving which is which is uh, a nice wide shot which when you're suddenly um you go to, to Cassie's point of view, where she's in the cupboard looking out, and you'll suddenly see the scale of, of the, uh, the scene that you've just been looking mm-hmm. at. And it's just bringing people in there, making it really visceral and, and exciting, and then suddenly dropping back out just to see how crazy the whole thing is was, was absolutely part of the plan from the beginning. Uh, well, it was a uh, it was a great movie, and I think that uh, I think you did everything very very well. It looked it looked perfect in in, in my opinion, and uh, thank you so much for for joining us. Oh, thanks for kind words. Really pleased you enjoyed it. It's uh, we we think we're really proud of the work. Thanks so much, Jake. Thank you. That was Jake Morrison, who is the visual effects supervisor on the movie Ant Man. All right. Well, when great questions require great answers, we turn to an even greater man. We rely on his wisdom for the Great Unknowns column in Popular Mechanics. He is contributing editor Kendall Hamilton. Kendall, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be here. Uh, so, okay, over the weekend, I was at a barbecue, 
and we were like at a friend of a friend's house and she was kind of standoffish about being inside and using her things. So we ran out of water and her hose was running because she was watering the plants and we decided just to fill up our water bottles from the hose. And this really divided the group. There was half the people that thought, like, how can you possibly drink from a hose? And then there was the group that I was a part of, which said, this is pretty cold and it tastes pretty good. And I remember liking this when I was a kid and I drank from the hose all the time. And it got me thinking that I wonder if water tastes different from lots of different, you know, taps or fixtures in the house, let alone the hose. And I thought that maybe that was a question you could help me answer. I will certainly do my best. Uh, it is true that there are variations in the water that uh, emerges from different taps within your home. That's not something you're imagining. There's a, there's a good basis for that. Um, you know, the thing that people most typically notice, um, less so than the taste, although the taste enters into it <clears throat> kind of secondarily, is the temperature of the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain taps in a house will have uh, colder water uh, than other taps. Uh, very commonly, you'll find, uh, hear from people, oh, that. that my bathroom sink tap gets way colder than water from my kitchen tap. And the reason that happens is a function of how water comes into your house and where it goes once it gets there. If I'm understanding this correctly then, so the water in your kitchen is probably going to be a few degrees warmer because it's at a different part of your house than your bathroom and it's going to be sitting in longer pipes, I guess, that are inside the house and they're absorbing some of the heat in the house and it's warming them up slightly. Is that right? That that is precisely my understanding, yes. And then does that heat difference then, does that have any um, bearing on the taste of the water at all? It actually can. uh, You know, apsychologically, I mean, you may just, you know, there may just be I just prefer really ice cold water and, and, you know, in your mind it quote unquote tastes better. Uh, but there actually is some research that suggests that the temperature of a liquid, uh, and its fundamental flavor, uh, interact. So, for instance, um, you know, there was a study done that found that, um, bitter flavors, uh, you know, are brought out and taste better if they're colder. Whereas, you know, sour uh, flavors or flavors that are described as astringent, which sounds to me like, you know, you put Ajax in it or something. I'm not sure exactly what astringent. <laughs> I don't what, drink... what the definition of... Ex- that, that's a question for another column. Yeah, not a popular flavor. <laughs> also a really. great unknown. Yeah. No, no, you don't hear... There's no astringent Jolly Ranchers. No. Or, uh, you know, no one's uh, adding no. astringent to their coffee in the morning. <laughs> Unless you're trying to kill them. them. Exactly. Uh, but those evidently, uh, you know, are, are more palatable uh, if they're warmer beverages. So let, let me ask this question then. What is the most, what is like the last choice tap in the house? Because it does seem that there's not only like an actual difference in the taste, but there's a psychological difference in the taste too. Like I always wonder like if I'm in the shower, like should, I always feel like I shouldn't be drinking that water. Like I, I can have like a little bit, but I don't want to have too much. Is that... Is that just in my head, or, or do we agree that that is sort of uncouth to drink the shower water? <laughs> it feels very uncouth. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, there's a part of me that, that pictures what might grow or accumulate inside a shower head, and I'm feeling that's not necessarily the most hygienic thing right. in the world. Yeah, it feels wrong for a reason, maybe. I, I think so. So survival know, instinct. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't drink out of a toilet tank either. Yeah. I mean, we could. We though, probably could. Oh, you absolutely could. I mean, I think, the, you know, if you pop the, the top of the tank off, there's nothing wrong with that. It's the I mean, same you know, water. Straight up water. It's all pipes. It's all. So this this brings me to a, to a different question. It's a little unrelated. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but they're all pipes. 
So is it, are they all pipes? Do the pipes go to the same places? Does it matter what goes down what pipe? For example, a shower pipe versus a toilet pipe? Are they all indeed pipes? I believe they're all indeed pipes. I don't think there's any kind of intelligent <laughs> presence down there that directs this water to that pipe yeah. and, and this other worse water to this other pipe. Uh, you know, I mean, there are certain, you can get sophisticated plumbing systems that might use gray water, which is, you know, say the effluent from your dishwasher or, mm. or you know, use shower water, recycle it into some purpose that's non-potable. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. maybe the dishwasher so is the last is choice tap. Yeah. Why couldn't you just wait? I was there! I saw a drain. Yeah. Fitz, when is a drain a toilet? It's all pipes. What's the difference? Different pipes go to different places. I'll call a plumber right now. I, I'm, with, I'm with George on that. I mean, once it goes down the drain, it, it's gone. You're never going to see that again. All right, good to know. So, does, um, kitchen, kitchen versus bathroom for uh, preferred water for drinking, um, or where, where is your favorite room to drink from? Personally, the bathroom. I find that my, my really? master bedroom sink is uh, the coldest and crispest water available in the house. No question. Interesting. KD? I'd say kitchen, but I really only like water if it's ice cold. So I have to, I have to kind of dress it up anyways. Yeah, See, I'm, I'm a kitchen man all the way. I need that stainless steel. If you can't, I feel like you, the porcelain, you can't trust porcelain. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Yeah. All right. Well, Kendall, thanks so much for for clearing that up for us. You're very welcome. I hope I've I've done more uh, clarifying than obfuscating. Great. Well, and happy drinking to you. (laughs) And same to you. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, and that's our show. I want to thank John Wenz for his help in researching the New Horizons story. How Your World Works is produced by me, Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bauer of Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. It helps us for some reason. And you can go to popularmechanics.com podcast where you can see links from today's show on the New Horizons mission. We'd like to thank Rode and Sony for the equipment that we use here in the studio. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.